Well, good evening. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you this evening. I want to do two things this evening. The first is to thank God for his faithfulness. And just, uh, I appreciate another opportunity just to share about God's faithfulness and what he did for our family and the other of the, of the group that were there in Haiti with us. But I also want to thank you as God's people for your prayers, for your concern and your support. And it's been over a year now, and we haven't really shared as a family for about uh, four months. And so this is a good reminder to us of, of God's faithfulness. And we've been thinking about uh, sharing. And so before I begin, I just want to appreciate what I seen when I got here. I got here about an hour early, and there were people already here. Um, so I assume that's kind of your uh, normal way of, of uh, fellowshipping on Sunday. And I just want to encourage you in that. Continue to do that. It was good to meet some of you before the service. And maybe we'll get to meet some more of, uh, of you after the service. But you know, um, Sunday is a time to gather together in fellowship. So it was good to see that. And I want to encourage you in it. Um, before I begin to share... Um, the story of our family and the rest of the, the group there in Haiti. I want to just read a few verses from the Psalms. You might recognize uh, the Psalm that's up on the overhead. This is an uh, excerpt from Psalm chapter 18. And this is actually the Psalm that I went to that Saturday evening when I heard that and realized that my family, along with the rest of the staff there at Christian Aid Ministries, had been um, taken um, captive. And uh, we had talked with the, the gang leader, and he had made his, his demands. And when I got back to my room, I turned to Psalm chapter 18 because I had found this psalm years earlier, and I had shared it um, with individuals because in this psalm, we see a lot of promises, and we see the confidence that David had in God. And actually, for about the first two weeks, all of my personal devotions I took from the psalms. And I found this theme of God being a rock in a fortress throughout all of the psalms. And, and that was a very, very encouraging to me. I was, I was back at the camp. I was not one of the group that was kidnapped. So I had my Bible, and I spent a lot of time reading it, especially at night when it was hard to go to sleep, and I was thinking about my family. But I just want to read the first six verses here, Psalm chapter 18. It says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death can pass me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell can pass me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him, even into his ears. And that's what we were doing for two months. And my wife may share 
You know, in, in camp, they cried daily to the Lord for deliverance. And I know people around the world, as families, we were crying out to God. And it was verses like this, promises in the scriptures like this, that reminded us, even though it appeared like nothing was happening and day followed day, we could have confidence that God had heard our prayer, our cry, and that he would deliver. So tonight we want to just share some of the ways that God was was answering those prayers even while um, the group was in captivity and then how ultimately God delivered them in a very, uh, very wonderful way. Um, first thing I think I'll do is go through and just introduce you to the group that was there with us in Haiti. The first slide here shows my family, those that went with us. Um, we were able to take our four youngest children with us and our oldest daughter. We had four daughters that stayed back in the States, and uh, three of them were in Michigan, and one of them um, was in Pennsylvania. She was married. But um, when they heard that mom and the rest of the children were, were kidnapped, my daughter, my married daughter and her husband came in and uh, joined the rest of my family in Michigan, and they, they spent that time together. But one of our goals in going to Haiti was to introduce our, our children to mission work and also to seek God's direction as a family for how to serve him. This next family, um, Ryan and Melody Corver and their two children, um, Andre was, was four, three, three, um, and Laura was eight months. So the children were a special blessing to the group in captivity. It gave them something to give purpose to their life, and, and um, they were able to spend a lot of time just interacting with the children. One of the things they had to deal with was just the lack of activity. They call it sheer boredom. Um, as they spent that much time you can imagine young, um, active men who are used to doing things every day, being in charge of their own life, deciding when to, you know, what they were going to do. Now all of a sudden they're forced um, to, to just sit day after day. So um, also the children um, gave them uh, favor with the guards. And um, you know, that was one way that God uh, softened the hearts of, of, the, of the guards, the kidnappers, as they, would, as they would see the children and interact with them. This next couple is Matt and Rachel Miller. So uh, Matt and Rachel were there with the group. They were the, actually the first of the hostages to be released. They were released on November 20th, yes. So Matt had a medical condition and the group was very concerned for his health. Uh, the day that he was released, he had a high fever. And it was one, uh, one time that, again, they, the group seen that God was able to soften and change the hearts of their captors. But Matt and Rachel were released on November 20th. One thing um, just wanted to mention about Matt, the group was, was, dis, was, was excited, yes, that they were released, but Matt had a way of bringing humor into their lives. Um, and uh, there, there's a lot of stories about how Matt was able to, to lighten um, 
their, their time there just with his humor. Kay um, was an encourager as well. Uh, she was the other young lady that was there in, um, in the group. Sam Stolzfus was, um, he knew Creole well. They, um, Sam preached to everyone that came into gangster camp. So there were times that um, his, he had preached so much that he had lost his voice. But Sam had a passion to share the gospel. And one of the things that we realized is that God, through this um, kidnapping, the the light of God and the gospel entered an area in Haiti that that no one else uh, was able to go just because it wasn't a safe place. But Sam, they didn't have a Bible, but they did have some, some um, Seed of Truth magazines that are produced by Christian Aid Ministries. And Sam used those faithfully to preach the gospel. There was at least one other prisoner um, who accepted the, go the, the gospel and was saved during the time that they were in camp. His name was Peter, right? So we continue to pray for Peter. Wes Yoder, um, he's a mechanic. Um, Wes spent most of his time, or a lot of time, thinking about ways that they could escape. And as they, um, as I mentioned, their days were often full of a lot of, of boredom and a lot of um, time. So one of the topics that they would talk about was ways that they could possibly escape. And um, they, they came up with lots of ideas. A couple of them, um, I think they had, they had talked about digging a tunnel from their room outside. Um, they didn't like that idea because they didn't want to be there long enough to dig the tunnel. I think one of the most creative ideas that I heard was the Benadryl plan. Um, apparently, the gang had brought in some uh, packets of Benadryl. And so they thought if they could sneak this into the water, um, at all the right time, maybe they could get the guards to go to sleep and escape. And uh, so they spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, and Wes, actually, God used Wes to, to um, um, find a route when they actually did escape. A couple days before that, Wes had um, snuck out into the bush and kind of plotted out a, a route that they would use if they had the opportunity. Dale Weidman um, is actually a Canadian. He was there with the group. He was the... He was in charge of the trip to the orphanage. Um, Dale was the only one of the group that was ever separated, and uh, the, the, the um, kidnappers had pulled him out of the van, and he was separated from the rest of the group for about two and a half hours on the Saturday that they were kidnapped. But other than that, they were always together, something they were very thankful for. The next slide, um, you'll see my oldest daughter again, and... The last member of the group was Austin Smucker. So um, we did not know Austin when we went to Haiti. Uh, Austin arrived at the mission less than 24 hours before the group was kidnapped. But um, my daughter, Sherilyn, and Austin got to know each other pretty well in camp. And then last year in August, they were married. So just one of the things that God accomplished through this kidnapping. So I had went to Haiti to teach in their Biblical Discipleship Center. Um, it's a program that Christian Aid Ministries operates where they bring in ministers and church leaders 
for a series of, of three-week seminars. And so we were having a seminar on Christian marriage. And um, I had spent two weeks with these men. And then um, we weren't able to finish the seminar because of the, of the kidnapping. But this is the classroom uh, where, I, where I would have um, spent the rest of my time teaching. This picture um, I show because I want, um, whenever I see these next two slides, I think about how uncertain life is. While we were there, while I was teaching, my wife and daughters and some of the other staff were sewing dresses. It was uh, in, in October. They were hoping to um, have dresses ready for all of the Haitian staff, ladies, to hand out for Christmas. So they spent a lot of time in this room sewing this picture was taken um, after they were kidnapped, and that room was like that for two months. One day, it was full of activity, plans, uh, the work of God going on. The next day, um, it, was, it was empty, and it was that way for, for two months. So as I think about the uncertainties of life, um, it just reminds me the importance that we live every day uh, in light of eternity. And so, yeah, just a, just a, just a reminder, and um, this slide is um, a picture of the van that they took to the orphanage, and the, the group on that Saturday were planning to go to visit an orphanage, which was about um, two and a half hours away, was it two? maybe two and a half, two, two and a half hours away from the mission. And we had decided to meet at nine o'clock that morning, eight or nine. And um, it was about a 10 minute walk from, our, our, from where we were staying up to the warehouse where the van was parked. And we had walked up there that morning. It was a beautiful uh, sunny morning. Saturday, uh, I had decided to stay back at the mission so that I could prepare for the following um, Sunday. We were planning to have communion, and also I wanted to begin preparing my lessons for the next week. That's why I didn't go along with the group. Other than that, the, all of the staff, except for the mission leader and his family, were planning to go to the orphanage that day. So we gathered up here outside of the warehouse, and as I, as I was standing there with my family, I realized that I wasn't going with them that day. And normally, as a family, whenever we go on a trip, before we leave uh, the house, we take time to pray. And as I was standing there realizing that I wouldn't be going with them that day, I thought, you know, this is my opportunity to pray. And so I, I just mentioned it to the group, and we gathered there in a circle and uh, just prayed a short prayer of blessing on their day, asking God to go with them, to protect them, help them to be a blessing, and to bring them home safely. And that's, that's just a habit that we had formed as a family. And I share that just to, again, emphasize the importance of establishing uh, good habits. We can trust God to keep his promises, but it's also important that we as God's people are, are forming habits and serving God daily in our lives because we don't know uh, what the future holds. But I remember standing there praying and asking God to bring, bring the family home I didn't know how long it would be, but God was faithful, and he, he answered that prayer. 
This is a picture of the orphanage that they went to visit. We were able to find this online. Um, they spent about an hour and a half or two hours there with the, the staff and the children. Um, they were taking some pictures, just interacting with the children, um, playing some soccer. And then before they left to come back to the mission, they ate a light lunch there that the, mission, the orphanage staff had prepared for them. And um, they left about 1 o'clock and headed back towards Port-au-Prince. They were planning to stop in Port-au-Prince at a small souvenir shop and then be back to the mission in time for supper. Um, they were about 10 minutes away from the orphanage when they noticed up in front of them the road was blocked with a, a box truck and some other smaller vehicles. Um, they had passed through that area earlier in the day and noticed um, some, some tires alongside the road, which is actually fairly common in Haiti to see the leftover um, uh, tires from a roadblock um, the previous night. But as they looked up and seen uh, the box truck parked across the road, they realized that this was an active roadblock Somebody mentioned roadblock ahead. The driver uh, stop, uh, stopped the van, turned around, and headed back towards the orphanage. And um, a couple of the group that had been there longer um, just reflected on, you know, you know, now we're now we're going to be late getting back to the mission. We're going to have to find another way back. It seemed more like an inconvenience to them, but it was a very short time. One of the smaller vehicles that was there with the box truck, um, started chasing them. And this was actually a small pickup. And there were a lot of armed uh, gangsters in there. They, they overtook the van and pulled in front of it, slammed on the brakes, and forced, forced the driver of the van to stop. And uh, again, the group wasn't sure, you know, is this what's happening? You know, there had been. Um, other occasions where some of the staff there had been stopped and robbed, but um, as they had the group turn around, the driver of the van uh, turned around and head back towards the box truck, they were directed off into, into a small alleyway, and there they found several other vehicles that had been stopped, and they, were, they waited there for... Um, a period of time and then the gang started to move these vehicles further back into the bush. Um, all this time, um, the group wasn't sure, you know, what was happening, uh, what the gang's intentions were, but um, it soon became apparent that um, they, were, they were going to be, um, yeah, taking them further back into the bush. Um, so, yeah, um, a couple things that happened as they were as they were headed back in there. I just want to um, touch on um, the the power of prayer and and singing, because as as they were moving back um, away from the road, um, I think they they stopped a couple times and then. Um, at, at one point, like I said, they, the Dale was not driving fast enough. I guess the, you know, he was trying to kind of watch out for the ruts in the road and just trying to, to sort out the situation. And at that point, uh, one, of the, one of the gangsters' vehicles stopped. 
they came back and they pulled him out of the vehicle and um, put in uh, a Haitian driver, one of the gang members. And from that point on, the ride was totally different. Um, they described it as the wildest ride of their life. Some of the ones in the back said they spent more time off their seat than on the seat. Um, but the other, you know, it's a, it's at some point along there, they started singing, The Angel of the Lord Encampeth Round About Me, which is uh, from Psalm chapter 32. And that song became a bit of a theme song for them. Um, whenever they were faced with danger, uh, they would sing that song just to remind them and um, the, 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 yeah, just to remind themselves that God was in control and that the angels of the Lord were encamped around about them and that, um, that God was with them. This um, is a picture of the, of the first camp that they were taken to. Um, they spent about uh, two weeks here. I'm going to give my wife a chance to share here. I was, as I said, I was not with them. Maybe before she shares, I'll just share what was going on back at the mission. Um, so we found out that the group had been kidnapped probably about uh, a half an hour after it took place. A couple of the young men were able to send out some WhatsApp messages to um, some of their friends, or to, I think one of them went out to a missionary group down there. And so I was back at the mission with uh, Barry Grant, the mission director, and we were talking about the plans for the next day. Uh, we had talked about the order of the service, um, the services for the next day. As I said, we were planning to have communion there. And then Barry was just sharing his vision uh, for the mission there in Haiti. And at, at one point in the conversation, I noticed that he started, you know, getting some, some messages on his phone. And, and initially, he would just ignore them because we were talking. But, it, you know, as they kept coming in more regularly, at, at one point, he, he looked at the phone and says, I think, I think we may have a problem here. And he had gotten a call from or a text from another mission organization down there asking him if he knew where his people were and if they were all safe. And so he looked at a couple of the texts and said, yeah, I think we may have a problem here. And about that quick, he got a call from um, the embassy and they were calling to ask if he was aware of a group of, of the staff there that had been, um, or I think he, they just asked, if there were some staff members who were away from the mission, uh, if they were in a white van. And so within a very short time of them being kidnapped, we were aware that something had happened and uh, were able to um, call back home to, to family and churches and just get people to start, to start praying. Um, we weren't sure um, whether this was gonna be a long-term situation or how soon it would be resolved. But um, one thing that the embassy, the man that called, um, shared uh, later, I mean, there were several calls back and forth, but one of the things that they shared is that we may not hear from the kidnappers for um, four to seven days because they had started to wait a period of time instead of calling right away just to kind of build a sense of, of anxiety and just get people more uh, in the you know, ready to talk when they called. 
So we weren't sure how soon we would know actually what had happened to the group. Um, so we were um, thankful about five, five o'clock that evening, we got a call from um, Sam Stolzfus. He actually used one of the, uh, was able to use one of the phones. The gang had given the phone back to him and he called and uh, talked to Barry and he was able to share that they were all together and that they were all safe. By that time, they were back to this first compound and, and they were all together in, in one of the rooms there in that building. And so we got a few short messages from them that Saturday night that they were all together and that they were safe or that they were okay. I guess safe was kind of a relative uh, term at that point. Um, but then the gang leader, a man named Lamo Sanju, took the phone and started talking to, to Barry in Creole. And I didn't understand the conversation. I heard a, a little bit of it. I could hear the tone of it. But he asked for a million dollars apiece as ransom for each of the hostages. And he said that, um, I think it, you know, when he had asked for that, Barry at one point said, you know, we don't have that kind of money. We, we can't pay ransom. We're, we're just uh, servants of God. We're here helping the Haitian people. You've got the wrong people. Um, Lamo Sanju responded and said, no, um, you know, I don't want this to take long. If I don't get money uh, in 24 hours, we're going to start um, killing them. And, and Barry again said, well, I'm sorry, we don't have that kind of money. We can't pay ransom. And, and uh, Lamo Sanju interrupted and said, um, listen, you don't do the talking, I do the talking. Your people are in my hands and I can do with them what I want. And I didn't understand that until the end of the conversation and Barry um, hung up or he, the, the, actually the gang member, gang leader there ended the call. And I just remember when Barry shared that with me, the thought came to my mind right away. You are not, um, our people are not in your hands. They're in God's hands. And I, and I just stated that out loud to Barry. I said, no, that's not right. They're not in his hands. They're in God's hands. And, and I'm very thankful for that reminder that God used even the words of this gang leader to remind me at that moment that he was in control. And we've seen that really throughout the whole time that they were in the camp. Um, we heard lots of things from, from the FBI and the embassy, from other people there in Haiti. But uh, I just want to praise God that he protected uh, each one of the hostages. He was with them. None of them were physically abused. Um, and, and that's something that we're very thankful for. So my wife is going to share a little bit about what it was like to live there in gangster camp. She was there for most of the time, and uh, so I'll turn the time over to her for. Well, I too want to thank you for your prayers. Um, I shared with somebody this evening, they said they prayed for us, and um, we really counted on those prayers. Um, there was times when we faced um, uh, death in the face, and we um, cried out to God, and we actually asked God to wake the church up and have them praying for us. 
um, a lot of the danger that we faced wasn't um, sometimes physical, but we faced a lot of spiritual darkness in that evil place. But God was faithful, and we thank him for that. Um, I want to talk a bit about um, God's provision. The Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And that is a very, very um, true verse as um, we experienced there in gangster camp. Um, When we were moved into this place, um, the house where the red dot is, it was divided in half. We had half of that um, building to our group of 17 people. It was about a 10 by 12 room. They put us all in that room and shut the door. And that's where we were the rest of that night. It was very hot. It was very sticky. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty. But we spent the night in that room. Um, They had some mattresses on the floor. We tried to lay down, those of us that could. There wasn't room for everybody to lay down. So some had to stand and some had to sit. And the babies cried. And so it was a long night. But we managed to make it through that night. After the first night, um, the gang allowed four of the men to sleep in the courtyard between the two buildings on a mattress, and um, thus they got eaten by mosquitoes and pecked by the chickens. (laughs) But, um, yeah, the mosquitoes became a problem, and that started a lot of other issues with sores that we had to deal with for Um, the rest of the time. But um, the gang brought us uh, food every day. We got um, breakfast about between um, 10 o'clock in the morning and 4 in the afternoon. You never knew when it was going to come. You just hoped it did. And supper came anywhere between 5 and 8. And so um, there was one day, I think we got our breakfast at 3 and supper at 5. So the hours between there were very long, especially with children. It was very hard when you have your children begging for something to eat and you say, I have nothing. I can't give you anything. Um, there was times when the gang brought us snacks, which were very special, and we thought, well, maybe we should you know, hoard them and just kind of eat them slowly so that, and then the guys are like, never mind. (laughs) And so they'd start eating. And um, so when they got all, then we had nothing in between meals. But um, we were thankful for them knowing it was kind of hard to eat them, knowing that we were probably eating stolen goods, but um, they were a blessing to us. They brought us um, drinking water, and it came in little square bags. If anybody's been in other countries, you buy water in bags. So um, we had clean drinking water for the most part. Um, They did bring some water bottles once in a while, so we were able to put our water in bottles. Um, We had, they brought in tubs of water on the back of a truck, 50-gallon drums of water, and they would sit them out, and we had to dip out of that to take our showers. 
Um, the guys, the gang had brought, the first week we were there, um, they brought a big bag of clothes for us to choose a set of clothes out of. I think the gang intended to wash our clothes for us, but we decided we'd do our own laundry. Um, so they brought us these clothes and we were supposed to find clothes in there. Well, there was nothing for us ladies to wear. The guys were able to find a change of clothes for them that they could wash their set and have another set to put on. So us ladies fended um, with what we had and we took showers, washed our clothes and put them back on wet. And that was a daily routine. That got old after a while, wearing wet clothes. It did keep you cool, but when you had to walk around in wet clothes in the dirt, it, it wasn't a lot of fun, but we were thankful we could be clean. Um, so God provided food and water. Um, the food wasn't always enough. There was The guys um, were hungry a lot of times, but we never starved. God also provided us healing. Um, you know, when you are in a place where you can do nothing for sickness, it's kind of a helpless feeling, but it was a blessing to know that we had a God who cared, and we asked, and he answered. Um, <clears throat> there was uh, fevers. We had um, fevers kind of go through. A couple of the guys got them. One night, my son, my oldest son, got a very high fever, and he went to bed with a headache and a fever, and um, I was kind of worried about him, but I thought, well, maybe the night he'll sleep it off. And so um, during the night, of course, we were, there was four of us sleeping on a double mattress, you know, sideways. And I reached over and touched him, and he was burning up so bad that it, it was almost too hot for my hand. And I had, I was just like, this is bad. And so... Um, Austin Smucker was on the other side of him, and I bumped him, and I said, Austin, Brandon is very, very sick. We need to pray for him. And so Austin got up, and my oldest daughter got up, and we put our hands on him and prayed for him. And when within five minutes, his temperature was down to normal. So God hears and answers prayer. Um, we had... The sores from the mosquito bites, they got infected. We had um, Wes Yoder's feet were just covered with sores, and he got to the point where he couldn't even walk. And um, so we asked the gang for um, if we could start a fire. Actually, when we, in two and a half weeks, we moved to this, they moved us to another location. We don't know why, we assume that they heard some news that somebody was coming in and so they were trying to hide us again. But they moved us to this location and so we were out in the country more, we liked it better, it was just more open. And um, so they allowed us to build a fire and boil some water and um, we were able to soak Wes's feet daily and um, bandage them up, we used, um, we had some salve that they gave back to us that was in our stuff and a few band-aids which we used up very quickly and then they wouldn't give us any more band-aids so we ended up using um, 
toilet paper that we wrapped sores with. But um, Wes's feet healed, and so we were very thankful that God supplied what we needed um, for his feet to heal because God used Wes to lead the gang, the, the group out. And so it was, it's just neat to look back and see how God prepared each step of, of the way. And um, Matt and Rachel were released on November 20th. And I don't think with Matt, um, Matt's physical condition, he would have been able to walk very far. And um, Kay Yoder and my son Sheldon and I were released on December 5th because um, Kay and I developed sores from the mosquitoes. And for some reason, when we prayed, God didn't answer our prayer to heal our sores. And we couldn't figure out why God wasn't answering this prayer, but God had other plans. And he um, worked in the heart of the gang to release us. And so um, that gave the group, who were now mostly young people, and were able to walk out. So God worked as we asked him to. We prayed um, daily that God would deliver us. And we asked that God would deliver us in a way that he would receive the glory. And I believe that he received the glory through that. Um, God provided for us in laughter. As Ray said, um, Matt cracked a lot of jokes and made us laugh. And sometimes it felt really weird to be sitting there laughing because it didn't seem like a very nice place to be laughing. But we were very thankful. And, and Ray told me later that they were praying that God would give us moments of laughter. Um, there was one time, um, this, there was just one special event that, Matt, that happened that, with Matt. Um, when we were in the first location, there was trash laying all around our compound, and it just, it just was not a nice sight. But um, <clears throat> the gang members that um, looked over us every day that were right there, our guards, um, they were there day and night, and we couldn't figure out how they kept going because... I mean, they were awake most of the time, and we were just like, how do these guys live without any sleep? And so a lot of times when they were guarding us, they would doze off. <clears throat> and so um, our head guard was sitting there. He had his pistol under his seat, and um, he was sitting there, and he just kept dozing off. And so Matt looked over, and he thought this was kind of funny. And he saw in the trash pile there was a mud flap off of one of the trucks. And so he go, went over and grabbed it, picked it up. It looked kind of like a gun, and he held it up. And he looks at the guard, and he goes, you can go on sleeping. I got him covered. And so we just busted out laughing. <clears throat> but he, uh, the guard kind of woke up then. He decided he better watch these guys. Um, the the Lord also gave us favor with the gang. Um, like Ray said, the children um, softened the hearts of the gang. We, and through prayer, um, I believe that God softened their hearts. Um, they, their hardness. I mean, when, when they first came in, they were so hard. They just were evil looking. And um, there was times when they came in and you could just see that their faces had softened. And they were actually sometimes 
kind of glad to see us, but they, um, they were very tired of us by the end. Um, there's uh, one thing that God answered in prayer. Um, I, when the gang gave us the bag of clothes, there was um, a few um, pair of underclothes for, for boys. Well, Andre, who was three years old, needed more than most people because he was three. <laughs> he seemed to go through the clothes. His mom had one extra set of clothes for him in her diaper bag, but um, it seemed like she was always washing his clothes, and so he needed an, um, some more underpants, and the ones in the bag were a few sizes too big, and it was beginning, because Andre didn't eat as much as he normally did at home, his pants were getting loose anyway. And so when he wore these extra large underpants, his pants started falling down. And, you know, we were already seeing gang members with their pants around their knees, and that was not a pleasant sight. And so we didn't really want one of our um, uh, group to start wearing their pants like the gang did. So anyway, I, I started asking God how for a way that we could fix Andre's pants so that they didn't fall down. And one day as I was looking out across, just um, asking God, you know, as before, why, God, why are we here? What is this about? And um, I looked down in the dirt, and there was something shiny down there. And I was like, shiny? <laughs> you don't find something shiny in this place. It's rusty if it's down there. And so I picked it up, and I was like, it's a needle. And in the needle was a string of thread about that long, and there, it was knotted on the end. And so I ran to Melody, the mother of the children, and I said, look, I found a needle. And so um, <clears throat> Melody went and stitched up his pants so that he was able to keep his pants up. So God cares about even the little things like a needle. So don't be afraid to ask God for little things because he cares. Um, each day in camp, we had morning prayer and worship time. We um, prayed all the way around the group. Each of the adults prayed. And then we sang for a time. And some days, <laughs> the singing was kind of not so good because we were pretty down. But by the time we were got to the end of singing, it really um, lifted our spirits. Um, singing has a way of blessing us as well as praising the Lord. So we did that um, prayer morning and evening. And then um, I think it was Monday um, after we were kidnapped, we set up a time at 1 o'clock, which is about the time we were kidnapped, um, we decided at 1 o'clock every day we were going to pray specifically for deliverance. That was going to be the focus of that prayer. And so again, we gathered at 1 o'clock and prayed around the group. And sometimes our prayer times lasted for an hour or two. So it, it got pretty long sometimes, but they were, they were very precious times. And we had nothing else to do, so why not? Um, so this place here is actually 
points. Okay, this was our compound. We had, we stayed in this house right here. So when they moved us there, we actually had three rooms in the house plus an indoor shower. In the other place, we had to take our showers outdoors in a curtained off area. But this one was inside, which we preferred the outside because the sun was warm in there. It was kind of dark. And <laughs> but um, we had a lot more area to move around in. They made us stay inside of these trees, but at least we were outside and we, we could walk around. We actually saw more people there because um, people walk this path a lot from this village here. And so we could at least smile and say hi. We were not allowed to interact with them, but other than wave and smile. Um, the other blessing that we had here was um, these here trees are coconut trees and there's mango trees there. They, we were able to get fruit, which was, we missed really bad. And so um, if we were starting to get kind of hungry, there was one of the guards we could appeal to and we just asked him, hey, can we have some coconuts? And he would go get a farmer to climb the tree and knock them down. And so we were able to eat coconut and mangoes and that was a real blessing. Um, my, our 16 year old son, um, I guess he was 15 at the time, but he got really bored of sitting around and he liked to climb trees, but the gang didn't like him in the trees. They were afraid he was gonna fall and get hurt. So they'd pull out their gun and say, we'll shoot you if you don't get down. So anyway, I don't know the logic there, but anyway. Um, so we tried to get him not to irritate the gang anyway. So when they were around, he, he didn't climb them. But one day um, they were all sleeping somewhere or gone and um, we could see them in their room. But um, the head guard was in there sleeping and so we were like, okay, nobody's around. So he climbed up the one coconut tree and threw them down and we caught them and laid them on the ground so that they didn't hear the thud. And we were eating coconuts when they woke up. So, um, but yeah, we were blessed to have the fruit at that time. Um, so after two weeks of being at this place, they actually moved us back to the other place, which we weren't real thrilled about, but when they moved us back here, um, in when we were there the first time, the, I said the room was divided in, or the building was divided in two, there was 11 other hostages in the other room. And so when they moved us back here, they moved them out and they gave us the whole building. So we had two rooms and so we had a little more um, space. And then it was the day after we were moved back here that Matt and Rachel were released. And so that gave us even more room in there because we were short two people. But we were very thankful that um, Matt and Rachel were able to get out and get help and um, be safe. Um, I think that's it, right? Oh. So this is a picture that Wes drew of their compound showing the two buildings there. And um, so, yeah, I just want to talk uh, real quick about uh, the day that they escaped. Um, 
lots, lots of stories that I was thinking about while I was sitting down there, but I don't have time to tell them. But we will have question and answer. If there's any, any questions that you'd like to ask, feel free to do that when we're finished. But um, this picture, if you, right here, this door has a, a stone and a, and a, and a log. Uh, it was like a four by six propping it shut. And that door was the one that they used to get in and out the first time that they were there. But when they were moved back, they were never allowed to open that door. And as, they, as the group was there and they thought about the escape, you can kind of see this was the route that they had chosen. And like I said, Wes was able to, um, they used this outhouse here. He would go into the outhouse and then the group would watch and when the coast was clear, they would, they would give him a single, single signal and he jumped into the bush there and did some scouting and had found a, a, a route that they could take. And um, the next slide will show the direction that they, they, they were going to head in order to, to get uh, to a place of relative safety. But um, they had decided that they could open this door by pushing the, the rock away and then um, pushing the, the log up and moving it sideways. And so um, on, on the night of um, October, no, December 15th, they had decided that they were, they were all in agreement that they were going to try to escape the next, uh, during that night. And they had set a time frame from 1 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock as the time that they needed to, to leave in order to have enough hours to reach safety before um, the gang would, um, would, would come in. You, you heard Cheryl mention a couple times that maybe all the guards were away or they were sleeping. There were actually several times that the guards were either all sleeping or, or um, away. Um, on one occasion, the head guard had went into town to get some Clorox to clean their to clean their room, and before he left, he brought two of uh, two other prisoners over. These were other gang members that had been brought into the camp um, for punishment, and he brought them over and set them in front of the the group of missionaries. And he said, "Now I'm leaving. Um, these guys are going to guard you, and don't try to run away or they'll shoot you." <laughs> And, and the group is like, you know, this is kind of bizarre. We're guarding the, the other prisoners here. How are we going to shoot them? We don't have any guns. Um, so the, the head guard left, and they kind of um, laughed together, and they shared some of their snacks with these other two prisoners. One of them was the, the man who um, Sam was able to lead to the Lord, uh, Peter, um, a former, yeah, one of the, um, either part of that gang or another gang, they weren't really sure. So there were times where, you know, it seemed like escape was possible, but the group was never sure, you know, is this God's will? Is this how he's going to deliver us? And there was always the question of, can we make it to a place of safety? Um, so they had come to an agreement that they were going to try and escape there on December 16th, and they had put um, a stick inside of their room during the day. And about 1 o'clock, they got up. They all got ready. They had uh, decided on an order they were going to leave the building in. And they took the stick and they pushed the rock out. The rock rolled away from the bottom of the door. And there was a, an irrigation ditch 
or a drainage ditch that they had dug outside of this door. Um, so the rock fell into that with a little bit of a, of a thud. And my daughter Courtney was inside. Um, that was where she would normally sleep. And so she was there. And so they were waiting to hear, to see if anybody would, would, would come because of the noise. And she decided she was going to look out and make sure that, you know, none of the guards came or none of them went to the outhouse because the outhouse was right be on, on the path that they hoped to use. And they didn't want to leave the building when somebody was in the outhouse. So she was down there looking out this uh, a, a crack under the door, and she seen the head guard come around um, the corner of the building, and he stood there and looked at, at the stone that was rolled away from the bottom of the door. And so she quickly told the rest of the group or somebody in the group, hey, um, Shefla is his name, Shefla. Shefla's outside. And so they had all been standing, ready to leave, and they thought, well, if he comes in and sees us all standing here, we're going to be in trouble. So they all hurried and, and went back and, and laid back down and um, pretended to be asleep. And, and actually, some of them did fall asleep. And so they waited about a half an hour, and then they decided, you know, if we're going to leave tonight, we've got, to, we've got to go, or we won't have enough time. So they got ready again. And they were able to push the, the post up, open the door a little bit, and reach out. Uh, Wes was able to remove that. And then he went out and um, went around the corner of the building. Up here was where their shower was. So he came out, got into the shower, and he was just checking to see where the guards were. And um, some of them were on the porch on this side of the building, and some were sitting out in these chairs so when Shefla had come around, the chief guard, and seen um, the rock there, he did, we, they, we still don't know whether he didn't see it or, or why he didn't do anything other than he went back around and woke up all of the guards and they could hear them on the front porch. But Wes slipped out, went into the shower. Everybody was on that side. All the guards were on that side of the building. He came back in and said, the coast is clear. And, and the group um, was all ready, and my oldest daughter was one of the last ones out. And the plan was for Sam and, and Dale to be at the end of the line. And when they came out, they were supposed to put this, the, the prop and the stone back in place so it looked like the door was still shut. And um, my daughter said she got to the end of the bush, and she turned around, and, and Sam and Dale were right behind her, and she said, did you remember to put the rock back? And they said they had, but it, she said it took them less than like 45 seconds or a minute to, for all of them to get out and in the bush. Oh, okay, I already advanced the slide here. So this slide shows um, the section of uh, where they were located. The pin at the bottom there is the camp where they were at uh, when they escaped. And they had earlier identified up here on the mountain at the top of the slide that is a, a sand mine and that was on on the north side of route three I think route three which was a major um, road leading out of Port-au-Prince to the north and they felt like if they could get to that location they would be far enough out of the gang territory that they could find somebody with a phone and, and call for help. So that was their goal. 
and they could see this because it was kind of elevated up on the side of the mountain. And so their, their plan was to leave the, the, the compound and head north. We've checked the distance. As the crow flies, that's about seven and a half miles from where they were staying to, um, the, to the highway where they were able to get help. Um, with the weaving back and forth, we don't know how much, how much they walk that night. Um, this first arrow shows the path um, they left and headed north. And they walked for uh, a couple hours just on cow paths. This first section was fairly easy. It, it was farm ground, as you've seen from that middle, uh, the second place. But they didn't want to meet any people or any dogs. Um, and so that was one prayer that they had and one way that God answered the prayer. They did walk through, I think, one, at least one village. Um, they seen some buildings, but they didn't meet any people and, and no dogs, which is kind of amazing with, you know, the area that they were walking through. Um, but... Um, yeah, my wife describes it just like God opened a way through the Red Sea for them. But when they reached this um, spot right here, this is a, a small inland lake. And they came up on the shore of this lake and they looked both ways and there was just water as far as they could see. And my oldest daughter thought they were at the ocean. She didn't know the geography very well, but they're like, now what do we do? We're on the edge and they didn't know, you know how they were going to get across this. Fortunately, Wes and some of the other um, young men had been there enough. They knew that they could skirt this, this lake, and so they headed to the west. And then um, right on the west end of this lake um, is a huge briar patch. Um, I don't know, maybe an acre, an acre and a half there. And they headed into this on, on what looked like a, a nice path, but it was just a woodcutter's path. And they got in there. And all of a sudden, the path ended, and there were just briars all around them. They didn't want to go back. They knew they needed to keep moving um, north. About this time, the, the moon had set, and it was the darkest part of the night. They were not able to see the sand mine because the brush was too tall. And so during that time, um, they, they, they had to rely on the stars and on God's direction, and they described several times while they were in that briar patch, they would just stop, gather together as a group, and ask God to show them a way or to make a way because there literally was no way to move forward in the direction that they felt they needed to go. After they would pray, one of either uh, Dale, I uh, mean Wes or Sam there at the front, they would just start um, making a way, and it's like God opened opened the way through that briar patch for them. And they emerged on the north side of it. Um, and about daybreak, on the north side of that briar patch, there was a, a small dirt road. Uh, they, I think just before that is where they encountered, did you meet one person there or just cattle? Yeah, I guess they, they, there was a group of cattle that they met on that road, and they thought, you know, maybe there would be a herdsman with them. But they, they walked along that road um, for a while, and um, then they realized, you know, they, they still didn't feel safe enough. They didn't want to meet any vehicles. And so they, they headed on up into the, into the mountain, the foothills, 
And um, were able to, to get up there. When they finally seen Route 3, they decided that they were the, the, most of the group was going to sit down. And they sent um, Sam and Wes uh, to find somebody with a phone. And so God um, had led them, and it was just about daybreak when they finally reached um, a place where they felt safe enough that they could um, find somebody with a phone. This was about 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, December 16th. Uh, back at the mission, Cheryl and I uh, were having, we had just finished having breakfast, and I was getting ready to head up to the office for our time of prayer and worship there, the men. And I was back in the room with, with Cheryl, and we heard a pounding on, on, the, on the door. And I said, wow, that doesn't sound like a good morning knock. I, I went out, and um, the um, Grace Mass, she would have been the, the county, country supervisor, um, Phil Mass from Christian Aid Ministries had come down, and she, she was there at the door, and she said, they're all free. They escaped. Um, so they had found a phone and called back to the mission and, um, uh, and, uh, and told Barry where they were at, and him and Phil had left to go and pick them up. Um, and we're very thankful. Uh, Phil, uh, Barry almost didn't answer that call that morning because he was also on his way to the office and when his phone rang, he, he, he said he just felt tired of answering the phone because so many people would call and ask, you know, how are they? What is the news? But so glad that he answered. Um, Wes, I think, called, but he wasn't able um, even to, to he was, he, he, as soon as he heard Barry's voice, he was overcome and uh, wasn't even able to um, I think he, he said hi to him, but couldn't communicate. But Sam um, told them where, where they were. This picture uh, Barry took, it's a picture of the group walking down Route 3 towards the mission vehicle. Um, and a lot of, a lot of smiles on, on the face there. This next slide was taken when they got back to the camp. Um, it took about an hour and 45 minutes for Barry and Phil to, to go out to where they were at and pick them up and bring them back. Um, but once they were back, it was, it was just a wonderful time of reunion, praising the Lord um, and uh, calling our, our families back home, saying everybody was safe. This picture was taken there um, at um, the base on Thursday. Uh, just just before lunch, um, it was all of the group that were that had walked out that morning, plus my wife Kay and Sheldon, who had been released um, six days earlier. We were hoping to spend a couple days in Haiti before we came back, just to give the group a chance to unwind. But the the U.S. Embassy um, really wanted the group out. They wanted to make sure that they were back in in a safe place. So they had um, arranged to bring in a Coast Guard um, airplane, and so this was the airplane that we used um, to get back to the states. We spent two days in Miami. Um, during that time, there were some interviews with the FBI, uh, just to debrief and get information about the, the kidnapping 
And um, also some of the family members were able to fly down and we spent um, about two days there as a group before we headed back home. This picture was taken in Philadelphia. We flew back to Philadelphia. My wife is from Pennsylvania. Philadelphia? Harrisburg. Philadelphia. No. Anyway, flew back somewhere. <laughs> um, and we're all together, so that's our whole family, and there on the end is my son-in-law, Monty. They met us there at the airport, and a very, very joyous reunion to be back together again. This slide um, is a picture of Lamo Sanju. Um, this was actually, is actually a video that was taken and posted on um, social media in, in Haiti. This video was taken about a week and a half after the kidnapping. And I just show it to you to remind you that these are the real uh, captives in this, in this story. This is um, the gang leader, the head gang um, leader of the 400 Muozo. And we continue to, to trust and, and to ask God to change the hearts of these men, to set them free. And we, we trust that the, the, the words that were sh spoken, the gospel that was preached, the life that was lived by the group there in camp will have an impact maybe on this man's life or, or some of the other gang, gang members. But yeah, just share this um, to, to encourage us to remember praying not only for the gang there in Haiti, but also for the church in Haiti. Kidnapping continues to be a problem. Um, it, it, it is, um, I don't want to, yeah, I don't know statistically, but yeah, the, the Haitian people continue to live with this daily. And then God is our rock and our deliverer. So we praise God for that. Um, I'll open it up at this time if there's any questions. Or, or comments. One of the things that we've enjoyed as we've been able to share our story is just hearing testimonies of what God was doing in the lives of, of the church and, and um, believers back in the States who were praying for our family and the rest of the group. So yeah, if there's any questions or testimonies that um, you have, I'll give a few minutes for that. So actually there was one gang member, gang leader who was in prison, who had been in prison for about um, five years prior to the kidnapping. And that was one of the things that made it very difficult in the negotiations. The gang wanted, part of the gang wanted a, a monetary ransom and part of the gang, or maybe just this particular man, wanted uh, a release. So, um, so there was one gang member who was in, or gang leader who was in prison. So he was actually extradited to the United States back in July, June or July of last year. Um, and he, he is actually on trial in Washington, D.C. So if that case um, comes to court and there's a sentencing, um, we may be able to meet him at that time. So we know that um, um, he has been extradited. 
the United States then last year, the end of last year, um, offered a $1 million reward for three other gang leaders that they'd like to have captured and brought to trial. So it's kind of ironic that this thing got turned around. Um, so yeah, the, they, they are trying to um, bring some, some justice. Their goal would be to dismantle the leadership of the gang and hopefully that would um, have an impact on the activities. Personally, we don't want to see them punished, but we do realize that there may be an opportunity to share the gospel if they're in prison. And also, we know that God has given the, the government authority and responsibility to protect um, and punish the evildoers. So. Yes. Yeah, so Christian Aid Ministries did not pay a ransom, but um, an, an anonymous party did pay a ransom. So um, an anonymous party offered to take over the negotiations and pay a, a ransom. And so there was a ransom paid um, the night that uh, my wife and Kay were released. We don't know how much it was, but we're sure that it was paid. We've seen a picture of this same um, man, Lamo Sanju, a couple days after that, handing out money and food. So some of that money, um, they claim that they do this kidnapping to support themselves and their families, um, which some of the money probably did go there, but a lot of it goes to support their gang activities. Um, and so... Um, yeah, there was a lot of discussion about paying ransom. Yes. How, excuse me. How did they come, I mean, come to a common agreement as far as time when they thought they should escape? Was there a mm -hmm. certain things that they put in place that they felt like God should put in place before they leave? So actually the 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 discussion about escape was was an ongoing discussion there was that was the one area where um, it seemed like the devil was trying to divide the group actually because some felt they should escape others felt they shouldn't some thought it was they should do it now others later so one one time um, I'm not sure about two or three weeks before they did escape was that even before you were released I think they were at the second place, and um, for two, for I think the second morning in a row, all the guards were sleeping in the morning, and so they had, they thought, you know, now would be an opportunity, maybe in the morning when these guards are oversleeping, so they had actually at that time um, talked about it, and they decided if the guards were still sleeping at 7:30. 7.45, that they were going to leave. Um, and everybody was in agreement with that. At, at 7.44 or 7.45, they looked up, and there were a couple guards coming across the field. So they felt like God had said, now's not the time. So there was a lot of discussion, pros and cons to escaping, how to escape. And so God actually used a series of events the day before um, that 
to, to bring them all of one mind that this was the time and that God was, was preparing a way for them to escape. Um, and he used a, a story that Melody was telling to my daughter um, to kind of motivate her husband that now is the time that God would protect them if they would escape. Um, and so as he shared that with the rest of the group, they all came to agreement that it was the right time. Yeah, so that's one interesting uh, dynamic of the whole story. Um, that they released both of them late at night, and how they did that, they they took them out of the camp in in a vehicle with a lot of gang members. Um, one of the things that they kept telling the group is, "We're here with these guns to protect you. Uh, we're not going to hurt you. We're here to protect you." And there was a there is a risk. Um, of other gangs coming in and stealing hostages. So, um, but anyway, they, they took both of them, the groups, um, Matt and Rachel and my wife, they took them out to a, uh, a meeting place and they were met there by a, um, by a Catholic priest. This man had somewhat of a working relationship with the gang. He had done this before for them. Um, he was a bit of a facilitator. The FBI also used him to bring medicine into hostages. And so they were both brought out and dropped off, and this Catholic priest then took them in his vehicle to the U.S. Embassy. And then the U.S. Embassy notifi notified um, the mission, and they went, we went in there to pick them up. We did not know. They told, the, the FBI told us they could, they could do it, release them in many ways. Sometimes they just take them out and drop them off along the road. Sometimes they'll give them money to get a public taxi. Um, sometimes they give their vehicles back. There's just lots of different ways that that happens. Was the van ever recovered? Uh, no. The van was not recovered. Not sure where that question came from. Um, and about, actually, about two months ago, was it end of last year? Um, at some point, uh, we heard that a, another gang, this 400 Moosa gang, would be from the north uh, east side of Port-au-Prince. Uh, another large gang from the south side of Port-au-Prince crossed the bay in, in some boats and they actually came and um, took over the, the Christian Aid Mission compound. So there had been some Haitian staff there, and also a, a mission family had been staying there for a while. They found out, the mission family found out that this might happen and were able to leave a couple days before. But actually, I'm not sure currently, but for a while the, the whole compound was was um, under the control of this rival gang. So I'm sure all of those vehicles that were left there were probably taken and not sure what all else might have been. So the, the security has continued to um, become a, an issue.
Yes. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it. I just want to say that I'm thankful that I didn't have to make the decision because there were a lot of people involved. I think the consensus, most of the families um, were um, in support of CAM's policy not to pay ransom. And we were praying and trusting God for a complete uh, deliverance. And we we are, you know, as we seen the whole thing unfold, uh, the ransom was paid uh, the night that um, Cheryl, my wife and son and Kay were released. They were supposed to release all of the hostages for that one ransom. But um, actually the gang had only intended to release two, the two ladies. Um, and it was only by the grace of God that they were able to release um, the third one. In the week following the, the payment of the ransom and the release, um, the negotiators told us that several times Lamo Sanju said, you know, we would like to release your people, but we can't. Um, there's disagreement in the gang, and that's where this other gang leader was still trying to hold on for a release. And so he had enough control and influence from prison that the gang was not... Um, didn't feel free to release the rest of the of the hostages. So, yeah, we knew that Cam had a no ransom policy. We did not want to see more money into the hands of the of the gang members. We knew that that's how. Yeah, they said they support their family, but they also use it to buy drugs and guns and and continue the violence. So, your other question is, what's being done with those places? Um, we don't know. We, we don't really have any information on that. Um, on that first ca uh, compound, there were two houses there. W the one that they stayed in and then the lower house, the other house on that property, nobody used that house the whole time that they were there, and they called it the devil's house. Um, the gang called it that. It was, it was a place that was a, probably a, a, some type of a, a place of worship, so, um, uh, Phil, it was one thing that we talked about um, that we would, you know, wouldn't it be great if at some point we could buy that property and, and build a church there or turn it into a church? And actually, some of the hostages had dreams about that happening. Um, you know, that building that was called the Devil's House in the dream was a church and I think their head guard was the pastor. So we don't know what God's going to do, but um, we, can, we can pray and we can dream about it. I don't think the gang knew what they were getting into. And, um, you know, from what the group described, it's like every time they would stop as they were going back to that first compound, it was like the gang would get out of their vehicles and kind of surround the van and look in the windows, and they're like, like you know, look what we got. And they really didn't quite know what to do with this group. Um, 
And they did stop a couple times and, you know, it seemed like they were trying to decide, should we actually keep this group? So I think it wasn't a predetermined thing. Um, I'm not sure really if they knew what they were, you know, that they were getting such a large group of people or not. A lot of, you know, what might have happened, they might have seen the group going, um, uh, I guess they would have been going east towards um, the Dominican Republic. They might have seen them going and just assumed, you know, anybody that goes east on this road comes west. But it, yeah, we really don't know beyond that. But it, it did seem like it wasn't a, a something that they knew what they were getting into. So were the death threats real or did they have a history of doing that or was that mostly idle threats? Yeah, so good question. They do, they do occasionally kill hostages. Um, just to keep a, a sense of unrest and, and you know, urgency there. Uh, the FBI told us that they, you know, statistically in cases that they were involved with, as long as you negotiate and pay a ransom, they will not, you know, they've never, how did they say it? They've never lost a, a, a case yet, but they'd always paid some type of ransom. So initially when, you know, we were very, um, committed to that no ransom policy, they said, well, you know, we have no guarantees if you don't negotiate. So, yeah, the 24-hour threat was, I think that was just a threat. It was trying to build urgency. Um, but honestly, as a family, about six weeks into it, we started having to deal with the fact that we have no guarantees. Um, there was, the, the negotiation process would kind of go forward by jerks. There were large um, sections of time where we would not hear from the gangs. And so, yeah, we, we knew that God would deliver them, but we didn't have a guarantee that they would all be uh, home safe. In a limited state, yes. Yeah. So Cam actually had two bases in Haiti. The, the main base there at Titayan was about 20 minutes outside of Port-au-Prince. And then they had a smaller base up in northern uh, Haiti called La Seuss. And that was about two and a half hours from um, Titayan. So my understanding is the La Seuss base continued to operate for some time. But then eventually all of the the American staff came home. They have Haitian staff that continue some of their programs up in La Seuss. Some of the CAM um, board and even some of the, like I think Sam, was it Sam and Dale or Wes? Two of the young men went back at one point with Barry and um, did some work at the base. But yeah, they're, they have a few programs continuing, but most of their American staff are back in the States. So that was a video that was taken and posted on uh, social media in, in Haiti. So I just, um, it would have been circulated through, I'm not even sure what, um, WhatsApp chat I would have gotten that off of. But that would have been something that one of the gang members took and then they published it. He was actually um, speaking at a funeral there.
and speaking about the hostages. Um, in, in about a week after they were kidnapped, there was a gun battle between um, the police and some of these, um, some of the gang, and one of the gang members were killed, and so that was the funeral that they were at. And so this man was saying that, you know, you've made me, um, you've made us cry tears, uh, we're going to make you cry blood. So he was just making, it was just some rhetoric and threats and different things, but it was a, something that was recorded and posted on uh, social media. Yes. Yeah, so um, in, I do have a slide actually that shows um, the, the paths of those planes from about a week and a half after, was it week and a half, two weeks? They had established a location for the hostages within the first week, and then about a week and a half after um, they were kidnapped, they started noticing these planes flying overhead. They didn't know whether they were... Um, the FBI or media, media trying to get pictures of them. Um, but actually the FBI was flying regular flights over, over the camp and they were, they were um, taking pictures and they told us that their, their footage was, was good enough that they could tell the color of socks that they were wearing. And what they were doing is they were counting every day, they were counting the number of hostages and just trying to monitor their, their condition and just make sure that they were being, you know, that they were reasonably safe. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, should, not, not, not early on, but towards, you know, after a month or so, around five to six weeks, they started talking about, should they try to go in and, and um, re, you know, um, what did they call it, do an operation um, and try to rescue them. But their policy was as long as the hostages are reasonably safe, that they were not going to do that because there's always a risk of loss of life either on either side. And so, yeah, they were able to monitor them close enough to know that everybody was there. Um, I think at one point, um, they were even measuring the size of Andre's stomach just as they would take the picture and then blow it up. And, and they, they actually sent in worm medicine one time because they, they, they felt like maybe he was getting worms because <laughs> his stomach was growing. Um, so yeah, they were keeping pretty close watch on them. They actually nicknamed those. The first plane was, what would, DLP? Yeah. Yeah, they, they had actually two, that, that was an acronym. They called it the DLP. They actually nicknamed all of the guards and they gave this plane a nickname so that they, they could talk about the guards without the guards knowing, you know, who they were talking about. I think initially DLP meant dumb little plane because it, they thought it was the media and they were like annoyed that they were trying to take pictures of them. But then towards the end, they, they changed it. It was the dear little plane and then, um, at, like, was it three weeks or so before they escaped, they noticed a larger plane, a, a twin-engine plane. Um, huh? 
four-engine plane, much bigger, and it would fly much lower and slower, and they called that the, what, Big Friendly Giant or something. But yeah, they were getting some pretty good footage of that. Um, at one point, they had made some signs out of cardboard and charcoal, and they held them up in the shower and um, said, help, um, SOS, we need help. And yeah, the FBI said, we've seen all the signs. So. <laughs> but yeah, they, they were very supportive and helpful. Uh, we had about five or six uh, calls with the FBI, uh, different branches of the FBI, just briefing us on, on what they were doing and what we could expect as families. Yes? Good question, dear. How'd you keep the children occupied? Maybe Sheldon, you want to come tell him. One time we made a car out of baby food jar lids and uh, wipes and sticks. Yeah, he was um, wanting something to play with, and we had a, a round wipes container. So we took that and bore holes in it, and stuck a stick through, and um, put baby food jar lids on for wheels, and that was his car. Um, so yeah, you had to be creative. Um, they played in the dirt a lot, which the gang did not like. They kept telling us, get them out of the dirt. There's bugs in the dirt. And I'm like, where do you want them to play? I mean, what do you want them to do? because you can't keep children sitting for 24 hours a day. But, um, so yeah, uh, Laura crawled around. She wasn't walking yet, so she crawled around and she was held a lot, which was um, a very much of a blessing in the end because um, when they walked out, they tied her on their back and she didn't complain at all. They didn't fuss much at all and, and the children did really well because they were used to boredom. <laughs> But, um, yeah, they found some containers one day and sifted dirt and, yeah, just played around with whatever they had. The guys did get creative and made a um, checkerboard out of a piece. Of, well, first of all, they did it on a mattress that had checkers on it. And they used um, bottle caps that we found in the dirt. And they had enough of two different colors that they played checkers. And so Sheldon learned to play checkers. They eventually made a cardboard with the charcoal checkerboard and that's what they did. So um, yeah, those were the few things they um, found to do. But uh, the gang cared for the children. And so they got special things, drinks and stuff. But the baby got baby food they brought. <coughs> plenty of baby food. We at one time counted 98 bottles of baby food. And so guess what? We ate baby food too. <laughs> but I did want to mention um, when Ray was talking about um, the, the gang, um, there was a lot of spiritual darkness there and God protected us. We've heard of other people that have been kidnapped since and the things that they had to watch and, and experience, God spared us of. And so we're very thankful um, for what God did for us. But I count a lot of that to prayer. 
there was much prayer going up from yous as well as us, and we prayed against that darkness. We prayed daily against their evil and what they were trying to do, and I believe God answered those prayers, and they were not able to do a lot of the things that they would have liked to do. So a couple of you mentioned the book, reading the book. Uh, we do have copies of the book that was written by Katrina Hoover-Lee. Um, Christian Aid Ministries um, organized that, and so uh, we feel like the, she did a really good job of bringing in not only the story of the hostages, but the family members. Um, we have copies of that. Uh, you're welcome to pick up a copy. Our address is in the front of the book. You can send a check. Um, um, whenever that's, that's if, if you're interested in getting a copy. They're also available from Christian Aid Ministries. Thank you for your patience. Um, don't, yeah, we'll be around here. If you have questions, you could come and uh, share them. Thank you for your prayers and for another opportunity just to come and share the story and remember what God has done for us and for, for the rest of the group there. And also just to encourage us to continue praying for God's people and the gang there in Haiti. So I'll turn it back over to Joe. Thank you.